My name's David Vaughn. Man, have I got some great stuff to talk about today. But before I jump into the message, I want to mention a couple things real quick. Number one, we are still buzzing about all the all-in baptisms that took place last weekend. Uh, you saw a couple of more right here, man. It's awesome. God's not done. Uh, hey, just check out this little recap video. Check this out. you love that? <laughs> Friend, it never gets old. It never gets old. We saw, I think, about 32 go all in last week, and I say it every time. Every number has a name, every name has a story, and every story matters to God. So now we got to help these babies in Christ, right? Because we're kind of turning misfits into being fit for the kingdom. So now we are misfits of another kind, right? We don't fit in anymore. So let's cheer on our folks who are babies in Christ. And I just can't wait to see and hear more about what God is doing in their life. Number two, quick plug after all in. I want to plug the Hope Open Golf Outing that benefits the Life Center. It's coming up here just a little over a month, June 5th, right after services are over. Uh, JT and I got to make sure we preach short that day because we got a golf tournament. My long drive buddy, Scott Smith, will be there. Donna, JT, Kelly, and I. Lots of great prizes. 100% of the proceeds go to the Life Center. Uh, there's also a banquet afterward. For those of you who may not like to golf, but you like to eat, that's probably everybody else. So you'll get a flyer as you come in or leave today with a QR code. You can also visit the Hope Open Kiosk in the landing. Uh, just look for the Mini Me cardboard figure. You know, you think we have enough money to make it life-size. But anyway, I don't know what that says, but I think I'm shrinking. But we need players. We need sponsors. We need prayers for uh, good weather. So uh, hope open. Put that on your calendar and support us any way you can. Well, today we launch a brand new teaching series called Generous God. And I'm going to talk today about the subject that most preachers never want to talk about. 
They're averse to it because it involves money and generosity. But hey, I'm almost done. I'm going to tell you what I think. I'm just, uh, oh, David, I, I, it's how every t- I've done this for 20 years now. I've heard it for 20 years. David, don't talk about money. <clears throat> You'll run people off. You'll make them mad. And it is true that some truth repels, other truth attracts. But I've heard that for 20 years, and I always love to teach it. There's a couple reasons I love to teach on this particular subject. Uh, I love to see the generous smile and the stingy squirm. Uh, that, no, I'm just playing. That's not it. I teach on it for a couple of drivers. Number one, because Jesus talked more about money than anything else. Are you aware of this? Jesus loved to teach about this. There are more than 2,300 references in the Bible that speak about money, possessions, Jesus being the source of many of those verses. In fact, 16 of the 38 parables, we're going to unpack one of those parables today. 16 of the 38 parables are filled with Jesus' view and his teaching and his truth about money and possessions. This may astound you. Jesus talked more about wealth than he talked about heaven and hell combined. (laughs) So maybe if he thought it was that important... It's important for us to talk about it. Every week here, we try to unpack God's truth for you. I also love talking about this because I really do. I know some of you are new and we got to earn the right to be heard and you earn our trust and we get that. But I really do want something for you, not from you. The principles that we're going to talk about today and over the next couple weeks have radically changed my family's life. Why would we not? give you info that will make your life so much better. Generosity changed my dad and mom's life. They were the cycle breaker in my life. They taught us that. And the the earlier you learn this, all of our young people in the audience in in Harbortown, the earlier you learn this generosity factor, the easier it'll be for you later in life. But my world changed for the better when my wife Donna and I intentionally started leaning in to develop a mentality of generosity. Also for years, and some of it's justified. I mean, if you think uh, I'm only interested in your money, that you're probably not going to make it long here because you'll find out that's not true. But for years, people in and definitely out of the church have taken shots at pastors and churches for talking about money and taking up an offering. I'm sure I can write this down. I will get an email today. Some people may already be crafting it in the service here and online. David, I can't believe you're talking about money. Now, before I answer you, before we say the church is bad for taking up an offering, could I just kind of process something with you? The last time you went to a Reds or Bengals game, I bet they took an offering. In fact, you have to pay for that offering before you even got to the ballpark. Now, admittedly, the services on the field are not so good. (laughs) May not be worth the money, but people still pay money to be there at those games in advance. If you've ever been to a concert lately, you contributed to an offering. Concert tickets are all-time high, shows all-time high. I don't think anybody's sitting out there in the show angry and complaining out loud. The only reason they're doing this concert is because they want my money. Anytime we go to a movie or King's Island, I guarantee you they will take an offering. In fact, if you really want to get serious about this, Starbucks is the one that wants your money. Amazon, Apple, Target, they're the ones who want your money. Elon Musk wants your money. The American Girl Doll Store just wants your money. And very few people complain about those places because, well, we tend to not complain about giving money to things that we truly value and worship. Oh, David, now you went there. You moved from preaching to meddling. Yeah, I did. Here's what I'm tired of. I'm sick and tired of Satan deceiving and enslaving people when it comes to money and possessions. He has got you to believe that it's a taboo subject to talk about, even in the church. And we got to talk about it because here's the truth. Money is the number one competitor for my heart and yours. Number one. So figuring out how to handle it is critical. Plus, after 20 years as your pastor... I believe there is not a better investment on planet Earth than the local church working right. Not a better investment. I I put it up against anybody. And this church is working right. 
Now, I don't want to use, it is not JT and I's intent or Alan and other, other people, Reed, who will be talking. By the way, could I just say what a great job Alan Cruz did teaching last week? Un unbelievable. I'm going to give him the money talk next time. Anyway, it is not our intent to use guilt today. I hope you don't hear that from my heart or my voice. That's an easy lever to pull on the west side for those who grew up Catholic. There's a lot of Catholic guilt. And I, I, it's no good for me to guilt you into giving because you know why it'll only last a week or two and then the guilt wears off, so will your giving. This is about grace mentality. Giving because we've been blessed, being generous because we've been generous too. So as we embark on this very sensitive and I know in some churches taboo subject, I think it's important to acknowledge that our upbringing, our education, our social circle all impact the way that we hear and think about money. It informs our, our own perspective, our family of origin informs how we see the world and the world of finance. I learned a long time ago in ministry that, we, that people see the world as they are, not as it is. It, they see it through the lens of so many things. So when we talk about money or generosity or possessions, you're going to hear something differently than another person. All of us here see something different. Remember the black dress, blue dress debate? What do you see? What you see and what you hear today then is going to vary and differ by who you are. I know this is true because it's the Holy Spirit or the devil. I, can't, I haven't figured it out yet. I will inevitably preach a sermon and somebody will come out and say, David, my favorite part of the sermon is when you said that. And I look back at my notes. I didn't say that. No, that's what they heard. So I think that's the Holy Spirit, not what they need to hear, or it's the devil. I don't, I'm not sure. But this is definitely true when we talk about money. You're going to hear things, so check yourself before you wreck yourself on this stuff. When I talk about money, some of us are going to lean in because of our upbringing, our education. We, we're thirsty for knowledge. We've been a financial wreck and a mess all our life. We want to get better. Some people will check out because those same things in their past have brought great pain. It's what their parents argued about. It's what they're currently arguing about. It was contentious. So if you're at the bottom of the financial ladder today looking up, we are here for you. We've got good news. If you're unsure about what steps to take, this series will help you, this generous God. Take heart, you're not alone. Nearly 80% of all Americans are in debt, some way over their head. Some will never have a plan to get out. I mean, if Jesus coming back is your only plan to get out of debt, you're in trouble. 64% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, and trouble with finances currently ranks number two in the reasons people list for divorce, financial hardship and stress. So what do we do? I'm telling you, for me, I must listen, as you do, to the only authority that really knows what to do and what to think about money, finances, and generosity. It's God. And he tells us how to do it in this book. So I want to jump in. And I want to start with one of those parables I mentioned earlier and unpack it. It's a parable I've taught on before. It's a parable that haunts me because I'm much more like this guy than I care to admit. And I want to read it to you. Someone here is going to learn something about generosity before this day is over. Someone in the crowd said to him, the him is Jesus. Someone said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In their day, uh, inheritance, the lion's share of that went to the eldest son, two thirds, by the way. If you're a woman, sorry, you're out. If you're a daughter. But if you were a younger sibling, you didn't get near the amount. Family's been arguing about money, by the way, since Jesus' day. You think your family argue about money. I went to a funeral a couple years ago, and I was talking to the funeral home director because the family at the funeral got in a knockdown, drag-out fight at the visitation over money. I mean, they were knocking over flowers by the casket. It's going in my book. And the funeral home director said something to me I never forgot. He said, David, where there's a will, there's a family. I said, okay, I got it. Happened in Jesus' day too. 
Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? In other words, Jesus said, I'm not going to get sucked into this conversation. It's sideways energy. Then he said to them, watch out. When Jesus says, watch out, you got to watch out. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. See, greed is not just money. In fact, hear this today. If, if you hear nothing else, there's nothing wrong with having money. It's when money has you. That's the problem. That's when it becomes your God. Life, this is such a great statement. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I can tell you that is so true. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. So he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Let me just stop right there. Was it his crops? Are they your crops? Whose crops are going to be 100 years from now? They ain't going to be yours. Everything you have is God's. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's the owner. You're just the manager. You're just a temporary steward for a few years. Notice this guy thought it was all his. Notice how many times he uses the word I, me, my. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. There I will store my surplus grain. It's all about him. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And if that were the end of the story, we could shut the Bible and all things will go well. That's not the end of the story. This guy has tragically missed something. He's going to move from a rich man, being a rich man, to a rich fool. And you're going to find out why he's the fool right here. But God said to him, then this is a tragically accurate statement of his life. And I'm telling you, if I'm honest, sometimes in my season of life, it's tragically true of me. I'm guessing it's tragically true of you. Here's the statement Jesus made. It's a strong but accurate statement. (laughs) And I just want to say this right up front here because I know some of you are thinking, well, here we go. This is what, this is what David, David's going to reach in and he's really going to guilt us into giving. No, I want you to think about your wealth in a different perspective. God said to him, you, what do you call him? Fool. Why was he foolish? Not because he had bigger barns. Because he left out the scenario that he wasn't going to be around. This guy probably was one of the sharpest business guys in his day. Yet he did not calculate on the fact that it wasn't his. He, didn't, he has excess and that he was going to die someday. This very night, your life will be demanded from you, Jesus says. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? <laughs> Man, what a Debbie Downer. You know, what, what a Johnny Raincloud. That's a bad subject. And so I'll just go there. You know, we're all going to pass someday, right? Some of us are sooner than others. I mean, you're young. You don't ever think you're going to get old. Trust me, you will. And frankly, we'll enjoy watching it. It's going to, it's going to. (laughs) Here's the principle then, Jesus, verse 21. This is how it will be with whoever, me, you, whoever, stores up things for themselves. In other words, they, they, they clutch it. They, they grip wealth. They hold it. They hoard it. This is how it be for those who store up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God or generous toward God. The goal is to be rich toward God. Oh, man, so many things to unpack here in this text, in this parable. In this parable of the rich fool, Jesus basically dispels the false belief that more possessions make someone more secure, more happy, and sometimes more holy. That is not the case. I heard about a guy who was asked, would you rather be poor and happy or rich and miserable? He said, I'd rather be semi-wealthy and moderately depressed. (laughs) That's who we want to be. But using barns as a symbol of abundance, Jesus challenges all of us on why we all would want or build bigger storehouses when what we already have is likely enough. This parable is an indictment of hoarding at the expense of generosity. 
Interesting, Jesus tells this parable in response to a question about a family inheritance dispute. And rather than acting as a judge, he addresses the root cause of the quarrel, which is greed. What Jesus is saying is that a rich man, a rich woman, turns into a rich fool when he or she hoards excess wealth at the expense of generosity. In my research for my message, I found an outstanding blog this week called The Rich Fool Blog. It's a guy who finally admits, like I am, I can be a little foolish with my money. Richfool.money. You got to check this out. It's really good. Don't, don't do it now. I still need your attention, all right? Check this guy out. Some of his main points are what I'm saying today. This rich fool was a fool because he did not intentionally leave room for generosity. We must also figure out how to be generous, strategically, intentionally, or we too will become a, a, a fool. He, notice he's not condemned for building bigger barns. Nothing wrong with the barns. He was foolish because he didn't realize he's going to die sooner than he thought. Eat, drink, be merry. Now, let me give you a few, as I see this scripture, maybe Vaughnism, I read it differently. All right, so I'm going to give you a few practical lessons from David Vaughn from the rich fool in Luke 12. Now, now, let me just pause, maybe before I do that and give you this list, I should just stop for a minute and define and talk to you about one thing that's probably already crossed your mind. <laughs> I'm sure it has, and that's why some of you have already checked out. David, Jesus not talking to me. I know you're not talking to me. I'm not rich. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of y'all already thought that? Rich is the other guy. Rich is always the guy that's got more. So the question is, who is rich? I'm saying to you, you are. Well, what? I'm not rich. Well, wait a minute. If your definition of rich is arrived at by what you see around you, you're not being objective about your view of money. As Americans, living in the richest country in the world, in the greatest era of wealth creation ever, we are living large. Throughout most of history, only the elite enjoyed the same standard of living that we are enjoying today and calling normal and seeing as normal. Just bring up any online wealth calculator and you will right-size your perspective on this, friend. I did it this week. I, I prepped by going on a survey, a calculator called How Rich Am I? Again, don't do it now. Do it later. I was humble. For example, if you have an annual household income of $50,000, did you know that you're in the richest 5% of the global population? You're a 5 percenter. You're wealthier than 95% of the rest of the world. Many of us here in this room and watching online are one percenters compared to the rest of the world. Even those at the poverty line in the U.S. are rich compared to people in any third world country. If you don't believe me, you just go over and see. All the problems you and I have right now are first world problems. I remind myself of that every time I get impatient in the line at Walmart or Kroger or buying gas. I keep trying, Dave, this is a first world problem. It is. I could be in Ukraine. I could be in Haiti. I could be in lots of other places. So we truly have to right-size our own view of self. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to very quickly turn to your neighbor and say, I am rich. I want you to do that. Say it. Turn it. Turn and say it. Some of y'all still can't bring yourself to say it. You, you just, I, I don't feel that way. And that's because you are not objective about your wealth. I can show you people who are poor. They're probably not you. So now that we have established that we are all rich, let me give you a couple practical lessons from the rich fool in Luke 12. These are lessons I have learned the hard way. You ready? Number one, wealth almost always brings more anxiety. Wealth almost always brings more anxiety. The rich... Young rulers struggled with this that met Jesus. This rich fool in Luke 12 struggled with this. The worry and concern about how to keep wealth, spend wealth, grow wealth, and maintain wealth will affect your life, and it will absorb every bit of energy in your life, and it will cause you great anxiety. I call it the affliction of wealth. And I used to, I worry about stuff I didn't worry about. See, when you have, don't have any money, early on in my ministry, when I was in Bible college, I had zero 
I mean, I just barely made a lot. When I was in college, I suffered from the disease of maltuition. It was a horrible, uh, oh, I, I see some of y'all got that. But now that I've got a little bit of money, now that I have to, now that I'm moving to a new season, a new chapter in my life, could I just say this? I got to trust God more than ever on this stuff. Do I have enough? For the next chapter in Don and I, will I continue to be as generous as I was? This is the battle. See, there is a flick, there is an affliction that comes with wealth. And the affliction is you are more concerned about keeping it than you are giving it. And the stock market has been crazy lately. If you're in the stock market, you understand what I'm saying. People's anxiety has been going through the roof. If you're not in the stock market, probably just better right now. Talk to your financial planner. But don't count on your portfolio, no matter how diversified, for your security. When life becomes all about the acquisition of more, we're anxious and we're never satisfied. It robs us of the joy we already have. I used to have a sign in my dorm room in Bible college when I had little. And I, I, I remember it to this day. It said, happiness is not in having what you want. It's in wanting what you have. Happiness, not in having what you want, because some of y'all got what you want. It didn't make you any more happy, fulfilled, satisfied. It's in wanting what you have. So we see this with the rich fool, this constant state of anxiety about never having enough, because greed and worry always go hand in hand. I'm friends with a guy who owns multiple houses in multiple parts of the country, and he's always worried about something going on in his house. Solomon says it best. The abundance of a rich man permits him no rest, no sleep. Again, not having money is not a bad thing. It's when money has you. The, the, the key is to understand that it always was God's. It'll always be God's. It'll be God, somebody else's, but it's always God's. Learn to turn it over to him. God owns, we manage. That reduces the anxiety and increases the generosity. Number two thing I learned from this rich fool, I've learned in my life, riches can stifle generosity. Riches stifle generosity. The Bible says that the endless pursuit of riches leads down a dark path of destruction. In fact, the Bible says, I've seen it in the church. People wander away from the faith because they're chasing gold and not God. Now, you would think that the more money we accumulate, the more generous we would become. Tragically, time and time again, the data tells us otherwise. Those with the most historically give less and less percentage-wise, not more. The rich fool illustrates the dangers of saving with no ceiling or plan, and that's how many of us tragically approach our finances today. Instead of giving generously out of an unprecedented abundance, we clutch, we hoard, we're selfish with our wealth. We operate with a scarcity mindset, planning for the what-ifs and the worst-case scenarios, and like rich fools, we're constantly building bigger barns. Of course, our barns look much different. Instead of stockpiling grain, we build bigger retirement accounts, bigger 401ks, bigger college funds, bigger stock, stock portfolios. The investment vehicles change, but the result, the driver is still the same. We lay up treasure for ourselves without asking if there is a higher power, a higher calling, a higher purpose for our possessions. And that's why giving and generosity in my life, I can just tell you, I give for a lot of reasons. One of them is it's the only antidote for greed in my life. When I open up my hand forcibly and say, God, it never was mine, I'm going to give it to you. Riches stifle generosity. Can't let that happen. You're foolish if you do. Number three thing I learned from the rich fool, trust me in this, with some investments I have made in my past, money can disappear at any time. Is this not true? Someone said that money talks, and you know what money always says? Goodbye. <laughs> the foolishness of the parable shows what happens when we put our faith in something that could be taken away in a minute. Could we just not all agree in this room and online that wealth is uncertain? It can evaporate in a twinkling of an eye at any time. It could be the result of a stock market crash, a car crash, a job loss crash, an emergency. Wealth and health are so fragile. We're just a vapor for a while. It vanishes in a moment. 
So someone who is truly wise and not foolish puts their trust and security in something, actually a someone, who is more reliable than your portfolio. So instead of living your life in pursuit of fleeting riches, we've got to leverage the resources while we still have them in our control to invest in things that last and outlive us. Invest in things that are timeless. Be rich toward God. (laughs) That older guy tell me, David, here's my phrase, do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. That's what he said. Because once it goes to the next generation, they're going to spend it ways you have no idea. And a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. That's what the Bible says. But make sure you are generous now, not later. So here's a question all of us have to answer no matter where we are financially. It's one I'm struggling with currently, just authentically. When I transition to a new position, a new chapter, I've got to figure out this question. You've got to figure this out. Here's the question. How much is enough? If the big takeaway from the parable of the rich fool is a warning against stockpiling possessions, the logical question many of us here today need to wrestle with is not how much do I give, but how much do I keep? Because the line between being responsible savers can get fuzzy very fast. We have actually, we actually have, I've talked to several who have done well. God's blessed them. They're givers in that coincidence. God has blessed them to the degree that they have decided to cap their net worth at a certain number and give all the rest away. Cap their yearly income at a certain amount and give the rest away. Some of y'all say, David, I would love to be able to do that. I just want a cap. (laughs) That's pretty good. I just want a cap. I just want a salary. Wouldn't it be nice to be in that position? Wouldn't it be nice to be able to give a million dollars away? Somebody said, well, oh, David, I would do that if I had a million dollars. Oh, really? How are you doing with the hundred you got right now? How are you doing with the thousand you got right now? So we always say, oh, if I had it later, I'll, uh-huh. Do, do your giving while you're living so you know where it's going. I can't tell you what your enough is. You have to talk to God. You have to talk to your spouse if you're married. You have to talk to other wise financial planning people who also, I believe I have a bias about this, who also have a kingdom faith-focused perspective. We have had people, and we got wonderful financial planners in the church, praise God. We have had people fire their financial planner because they said, your giving is out, uh, outrageous. You shouldn't give any to the church. That's a bad investment. That guy should be fired. That gal should be fired. Don't go to some, I wouldn't trust their advice on anything after I heard that. What is your enough? You have to decide. But I think the answer is finding an approach that allows for expanding room for generosity as our wealth increases and expands. It's budgeting your intake, your upkeep to ensure that you continually are giving and investing in kingdom ventures. That's the only way you can have wealth. It's the only way I can have wealth without it having me. And I win the battle to build those bigger barns. Which brings me to my object lesson for today. It's a ladder. I'm going to call it today the ladder of generosity. And I want to talk about climbing. Would you welcome our, uh, our ladder lads here uh, today? Yeah. Awesome. Good job. Now, everybody here wants financial peace at the top. Nobody wants to pay the price. Everybody wants to give a heaven. Nobody wants to know what it takes. Nobody wants to go today. We're going to talk about each one of these rungs briefly. Most of us in this room, most of us may watch online are down here in the financial stress category. We're on the lower level. That's cool. You got to start somewhere. I was a mess before I had peace. I had stress before I had peace. This is where you learn. The good news is that's where everybody has to start. The bad news is that there's a whole bunch more people around down here. It's crowded down here on the financial struggle bus. You'll have a lot of friends, but you know what they are? Broke. They're hoping you'll get up the ladder so they can follow you. So I want to talk about this ladder because everybody wants to move to financial peace. It's not a lot of fun down there. So let me start at the top. The first level is what I call the peak level. It's a sacrificial giver, someone who's uber generous. This is where folks practice radical hospitality because God is a radically generous God. We learn how to be radically generous. Now, 
as you glance down the ladder, and I'm just telling you right now, this is how, how, how it works for most people. You've already moved down and said, well, you know, I want peace, but I don't want the sacrifice. <laughs> Let me hear about that proportional. Let me hear about this. And they see, we, we want peace, but we don't want to do what it takes to climb the ladder. We, 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 so we stay at the bottom. At the very top level is radical generosity. Generosity encompasses, by the way, let me get this out, more than just church giving. Myself included, I know many here are very generous about other missions and projects and worthy causes that are worthy of your generous support. But in a church environment, the lion's share of my giving goes to this local church because I think there's nothing like the church when it's working right. And I believe in this end, and we have audits, and we, we, we are good managers of money. I, I love this. And in a church environment, these folks at that top sacrificial lover, uh, giver rung love to tithe, which is giving 10%, and then they give a significant amount even beyond that. You say, David, I can't give 10%. Well, start at 1%. Start at 2 it, It's awesome when you get to that level. Folks on this rung make so much happen for God in his kingdom. Now, I'll tell you, I love everybody on every rung of this ladder. God calls me to love the down and out as well as the up and in. In fact, I have to disciple as a generosity coach a lot of these people. They don't know, they don't trust how to handle this wealth. And there is no political, I'm not swayed by people in the church that give more or less. I love everybody. I'm just asking, where are you and what can I do or help you, JT and I, to get you to that next level? But make no mistake about it. These people are valuable. You're sitting in a building because people on this level give an extraordinary, exorbitant, extravagant amount of money right here, these folks. <laughs> Reminds me of uh, two guys who were marooned on a desert island, and they didn't think, it, one of the guys said, we'll never get off here. One of the guys was just panicky. He, he was running around an island all, all out of sorts. He was just, you know, yelling, screaming, praying, God, get me all this island. God, we're never going to go off here. We're going to die. He was just all out of sorts. The other guy was leaned up against a palm tree with his hands behind his head and just all relaxed. And that guy said, what are you so relaxed for? Don't you understand? We're going to die here. We're never going to get off this island. Don't you understand that? The other guy said, no, you don't understand. He said, I make $5 million a year. I give half of my annual income to the church every year. My pastor will find me. I'll swim to that guy. <laughs> Sacrificial giver. Don't love them more. Don't love them less. The, Jesus didn't love them more. He didn't love them less. This category of people simply have learned to celebrate what God is able to do through them, and then they tithe off of not only their income, but their business, their passive income, their property, their assets. The key question for any of you in this room and watching online at this rung is how much of God's money should I keep? It's the original question I posed earlier. Not how much should I give, how much should I keep? Next rung down, obedient, proportional giver level. These are tithers. These are people who have learned over time and probably with mistakes to, to give to God a tithe, 10% back of his money he already owns. And could I just say this to you? I, I know you... You just won't believe it until you do it. You know, there's some things in life that you, I can't prove to you until you actually do it, and then you'll understand why. I am convinced that God bless when we give 10%, the first 10% back, I am convinced God blesses that 90% when I give 10 more than me holding and hoarding 100% and see what he does. We shovel it out, God shovels in, he's got a bigger shovel. I'm just telling you right now. Story of my life. It's a proportionate giving. These folks are aware of God's blessing. They're intentional. They're thoughtful. They're thankful. They have a sense of obligation, but they go through life with open hands. Okay, I'm going to give you a little inside baseball numbers right now. If you're new, it's going to blow your mind. If you're in the church, it'll rock your world even more. Any guess on the percent of Christ followers in this category? The tither proportional giver category across all churches in America right now. Percent of Christ followers who give a tithe or 10% back to God from their income. Anybody want to garner a guess? 4%. Pretty good. And we want to talk afterward. You're a smart guy. 4%. 
Now, think about what Kingdom Ventures could be funded. How many poor and broken people could find help and hope in Jesus if every Christian tithed? If we just moved that meter from 4 to 8%, a tithe of the tithers, what if we got 10? It's staggering to consider. The government is fixing stuff that Christians should already fix if we tithe. So key question on this rung, am I giving back to God a portion of everything he's blessed me with, not just my tithe? If you're going to tithe, calculate it all, all your assets. I have to ask myself, am I being generous with my cars? Am I allowing them to be used by God? My houses, my boats, my RVs, my stock holdings, my investments, my possessions. As a proportional giver, am I truly giving 10% back to God? Then the next rock down is the basic level. I call it the initial giver. And it is the first move, the first step out of financial stress. I'm hoping many of you take it today. If you're in this category, don't feel bad. But this is the group of givers that comprises the largest group in any church. Folks in this category possess, and I love it, a vague understanding of their obligation to be generous stewards of resources But tragically, sadly, they do not actively seek out opportunities to give and trust God. I have been around ministry, listen, I've been around ministry my whole life. I've been around church my whole life. I have never found anybody that moved to this category without trusting God more than self. Every step up is more trust, and every step up, God blesses even more. It comes down to who do you trust. People in this category, they trust themselves more than God, which is so ironic. The very guy that wants to bless you, you're withholding from. People on this rung give casually, randomly, reluctantly, and tragically not at all. This might be, to me, the most frustrating category as a leader here as your pastor for years. Because usually those in this category are the very first to be offended (laughs) when I talk about giving. Those who give zero are the most offended. That's the emails I'll get this week. It's not from people who are good givers. They'll say, pour it on, David. Amen. Preach it. It's those of us who struggle with trust. So the key question at this stage or rung is this, how can I trust God with my giving and generosity? And let me just give you an answer. Something, anything. You trust him for your salvation, why would you not trust him with your silver? There are many numbers in our church that I keep up with and look at and metrics and data. And the one I'm gonna give you right now is the one that haunts me I don't lose a lot of sleep, but I've lost sleep over this percentage because the dial has to be moved. Anybody here want to guess the percentage of Christ followers in our wonderful church here who give nothing? Now, again, I know it takes time. If you're new, check our motive, earn trust. I get that. Anybody want to guess? Are you sitting? Well, I guess you are sitting down. (laughs) The number of percent of people who give zero at this church, I don't think we're unusual, we're an outlier, 67%. Two-thirds of the people in our church give zero. Friend, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. This is not right. This is wrong. How could we do that? Now, I'm choosing to believe, I might be naive, I've called that before, I'm choosing to believe it's not because you're stingy, it's because you're strapped. And I'm gonna give you, over this series, we're gonna give you some generosity hacks so you're not strapped, so you can move off that. But friend, I'm telling you right now, this grieves the heart of God. And it's not just because we want something, look how good we're doing with only two-thirds of the, one-third of the people giving. I don't want something from you, I want something for you. I'm, I'm encouraging you to give because God wants to bless you. I'm just telling you, testimony after testimony in my life and your life, sometimes it even comes down to the dollar where he 
pays back and he gives back. It is wrong for people to give zero here. I don't know what that means for you. You got to fix that. If you want to send an email, great. I'm only here for a couple more months. Uh, <laughs> I would love to get that fixed for us and for you. Whitewater is the mold breaker, the cycle breaker in so many things. Why couldn't we? Why couldn't we break that national average, which I think is, by the way, far too normal in most churches? Why couldn't we be one to break that cycle? Well, somebody said, well, David, I, I, okay. Should I give off my gross? Should I be generous off my gross or my net pay? <laughs> my answer is always the same. <laughs> Do you want God to bless you grossly or netly? <laughs> you decide. I am just asking you today, everybody in this room, to evaluate which step you are on and make a commitment by, in this year, by the end of 2022, you will move up a rung. I cannot tell you the cosmic missional difference that would be made if you move from zero to giving something and if the people who are giving a little something would become tithers. It is a cosmic missional difference. We could do so many more things. We could tell so many more life stories. Your life would change if you just move up a category. We have a book to help you. They may be gone. We've got more on back order. If you could check in with the info counter. We handed this out at the summit. It's called, ironically, the generosity, generosity ladder. Isn't that funny how I use the same thing? Anyway, short, quick, great book. We'll get a copy. If you got one at the summit, you don't need to get another one. But David, I can't afford to give. <laughs> Let me tell you something right now. You can't afford not to give. The only way God's going to help you out of your mess is to trust him with your money. That's all I'm saying. So that's my heart. Send on the emails. <laughs> I just don't want to be a fool. And I don't want you to be a fool. I want to meet Jesus face to face with an open hand and an open wallet and an open heart. In fact, I think we should start a new tradition, you know, that when we have people go all in. I've been back in the back room back there, you know, the changing area. People take off their shoes, they take off their watch, they pull out their cell phone, they take their wallet out. I think we should baptize people with their wallets on in from now on. That, that, that's all I'm saying. New tradition. And I'm not quite serious, but I am. Because when the purse is redeemed, the person is redeemed. I don't really think you're saved until God saves your wallet. Because that's your God until you give it to him. And in spite of reports to the contrary, friend, God doesn't want the money out of our wallets. He wants the idols out of our hearts. Jesus' words, not mine, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So just a moment, we're going to share communion in the room. If you got that when you came in, grab it. Our team, if you did not get some bread or juice, raise your hand, keep it high. Our team will serve you. Our worship team is going to come out here in just a minute, prepare for a wonderful song of reflection after communion. Let me just end with this one last metaphor. I have decided that most people go through life not with open hands, but with closed hands. Think about it. The moment you are born, you start to clutch stuff. You hold very tightly a pacifier or a baby bottle. And you, you try to take that away from a baby and you'll hear him scream same thing with spiritual babies. Then a few years later, our hands clutch a big wheel or a tricycle. Then we grow a little bit more and we hold a bat or a Barbie doll. And then we get our driver's license, which we've been looking forward to holding, and we hold a steering wheel for the first time. And then we graduate from high school or college, and we hold and clutch a diploma. And then we get our own car, and then we get our own house 
a title and then we hold and clutch a career and we embrace and lock into that and then we'll work for a long time and we'll hold a 401k or we'll hold an investment and then someday we will retire and we will hold a social security check or a nest egg and then something starts to happen as we get older we get a little more bent over and we might need to clutch a cane and then if that doesn't work, we hold and grip the sides of a walker. And finally, for many people at the end of their days, they're probably in a hospital or a nursing home. And right before they pass, they hold and clutch tightly the rails, the side rails of a bed. And then they die. And for the first time, for a lot of people, after they die, their hands loosen and release. And maybe for some, they did something they never did their entire life previous. They open their hands. I'm saying I don't wanna wait till the end to have my hands open. I wanna do it now, not then so God doesn't call me a fool. Those that go through life hoarding and gripping, you're foolish. This life is not all there is. This is just a practice for the main thing in heaven where we'll walk on streets of gold. Be generous, not because you have to, but because you want to. Because when Jesus died, he not only opened his hands, he opened his arms wide, said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do the ultimate sacrificial giver, Jesus, who left this world with open hands. And by the way, when he came back on that Easter and those women saw him and he appeared to the disciples later, he said uh, to Thomas, look at my hands. They're open because that's how we're supposed to live.